What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Today, on episode 262, we're going to talk about the common cold. Now, the common cold is a mild, self-limited infection caused by one of several families of viruses, Viridae. You say Viridae? You can if you want to be all microbiological about it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. It is the most frequent acute illness in the United States and the world, and it costs more than $40 billion a year in economic losses in the U.S. alone. In today's podcast, we'll cover what the common cold is, how to treat it, how exercise affects risk of infection and severity of illness, and much, much more on the other end of the line. You heard him already. Dr. Austin Baraki, second most handsome doctor in North America. What's up, dude? Hey, um, my voice, as I mentioned, is slightly off because I am, in fact, recovering from a common cold in the past few days. Partially the uh, partially the inspiration for this episode, as well as uh, having a bunch of recent interactions with family members who are going through a cold and uh, frequently asking me questions about how to treat it. Do I need antibiotics? Things like that. <laughs> I wish having looked at the outline, which is very extensive, you did a smash up job and then, you know, I did the exercise uh, portion and together we're going to communicate some great science and, 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 and potentially some wisdom along with some laughs in this particular episode. I, I do wish though, that instead of going through the diagnosis, the treatments, et cetera, all this other sort of stuff, it was just the history of how it became known as the common cold. Like, do you think that Galen back in the day was like, well, let's call it the common cold. Yeah, I actually didn't. I mean, I often do do a little bit of digging into the history. I, I didn't hear. Um, I do. I am probably do some of that after after we finish. It's it's um, probably a little interesting. And and you know, there is the very frequent common, you know, social belief that you know being out in the cold increases your risk of catching a cold, which will, as we will discuss, is is not true. Um, having a, a a Middle Eastern background myself, I'm very. I, I recall when I was a kid, my my grandma saying things like, "There's like an Arabic saying of." You can, if you go outside, you get smacked by the wind, and that's like the same thing. Of like, if you you get smacked by the wind and you catch a cold, same idea. It's like pretty prevalent that uh, you know cold weather, cold environments. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but it'd be interesting to look up. Yeah, that was the thing. Like, I, obviously, Galen predates Lister. 
you know, the <laughs> and germ theory and all that other sort of stuff. But but this has been around, you know, oh, the common cold and, you know, environmental exposures and stuff are the cause of the common cold. That's been around since way before we discovered what a bacteria was or for virus. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps the the impetus for this particular podcast came from you. you you're getting a little salty on the internet. I'm going to read just the the tweet that that set off this storm in your mind uh <laughs> predating the cytokine storm that you had a few days ago <laughs> I, I assume this is from uh, dr andrew huberman uh i'm preparing a huberman lab podcast on colds and flus and how to avoid slash treat them what protocols besides the standard rest liquids weight advice do you believe can truly help you recover more quickly and or stay non-infected i'm asking about colds and flus only specifically now this just ignores the fact that colds and influenza are not the same thing in fact influenza is not one of the common cold causes not one of the members of those many uh families of viridae that cause the common cold so let's just ignore that we could that's for another podcast uh i assume you read some comments and then we're we're triggered <laughs> i mean i saw this and of course every single thing that he does or talks about has to be a damn protocol uh to make people feel like <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it would drive me insane. But I expected a whole bunch of nonsense to ensue, which sure enough, in the comment threads, it did ensue. And um, I, if I could predict some things, I expect his podcast will as well. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, just preemptively, like, you know, it's going to be garbage. You just, you just know <laughs> it is. And, and, and this isn't a slight or like a personal attack on Dr. Huberman. I don't, I don't know this person uh, personally. H however, it's just the nature of how he, it, it interprets science as as it were, and then over extrapolates and gets over enthusiastic about very mechanistic findings. And so, I, I actually suspect the podcast, particularly if it addresses exercise at all, is going to really, you know, go into the weeds on different, you know, immunoglobulin levels and cytokine levels and other sort of maybe metrics, poor metrics for immune system function overall, because it's more complex than just like numbers on a on a test. And I just, I'm already just cringing, just thinking about <laughs> having it. Maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Let's think, let's think optimistically. All right. So, uh, you know, I was going to ask you like, you ever have a cold before, but it seems like you just had one. <laughs> so why don't you take people through like, what is the common cold? What is the definition of a common cold? Yeah. And, and this is actually worth discussing to differentiate it from some of the other things that require unique treatment. So the common cold is, as you mentioned at the outset, a mild, generally mild, um, although that's relative, I suppose, based on your previous experience, um, upper respiratory infection that's due to a virus. And when I say upper, uh, that refers to the upper parts of the airway. So things like your nose, your sinuses, the pharynx in your throat, larynx, your quote unquote voice box, things like that. And that's to contrast it with lower airway because you can have lower respiratory tract infections that more so involve the trachea, the bronchi, those are your you know, your windpipe, uh, uh, colloquially uh, termed, um, the alveoli getting down further and further into your lungs and, and deeper into your body, so to speak. Um, so those are conditions more like bronchitis and pneumonia. And so this, this cold infection is caused by, there are hundreds of different types of viruses. There are all sorts of different categories, most commonly known as the rhinoviruses, the coronaviruses that people are more than ever familiar with. That is a broad family, most of which cause colds, although some coronaviruses are more unique, like the SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, et cetera. 
that are kind of distinct. RSV has been in the news a lot more recently, but has always been something we recognize in affecting kids and affecting certain, you know, predisposed adults, as well as a whole bunch of others that we can diagnose on certain kinds of viral, like PCR-based tests. But um, you can't really distinguish between them by symptoms alone. Just, you know, people's symptoms don't say, oh, this is clearly a, you know, a, a para-influenza virus or a menonumavirus or a, you know, a coronavirus type infection. They're all more or less similar variable and can't be distinguished unless you uh, identify them uniquely by by testing. Yeah. And uh, so this particular podcast, we're going to just focus on adults. We could go off the rails talking about uh, upper respiratory tract infections in kids. And well, man, we'd just be here for hours talking about all the potential sequelae and and complications and, and you know, public health sort of strategies uh, with respect to those. But we're going to talk about adults still, though. The average incidence of the common cold is super common, five to seven episodes per year in preschool children and two to three per year uh, in adulthood. Like five to seven percent on average is the general population sort of yearly risk, as it were. And so you would think like, wow, what a big public health target. Shouldn't there be a vaccine? For this? Shouldn't there be a ton of treatments for this? You know, if it costs $40 billion a year in economic losses, something like 70 million days missed from work just by adults getting a cold themselves, uh, over double that in like missed school days and, and such. If you were a pharmaceutical manufacturer, this should be like top of mind. <laughs> like, hey, can we find something um, for, the, for the common cold? But I think the conceptual understanding has to be that because there are many different types of viridae viruses as it were that can cause uh the common cold this upper respiratory tract infection that makes it sort of uh a heterogeneous target and these viruses change over time as again people are more and more familiar with making it very difficult to come up with something that would uh be a quote silver bullet hey this really reduces the risk um so yeah anyway let's talk about how people actually catch the common cold how do they get one of these Viridae, and I'm going to keep saying that because I love the fact that I know that word. <laughs> so what are the two main ways that people catch one of these things, Austin? Yeah, so the first is going to be just through direct hand contact, either with an infected uh, person, their secretions from indirect contact with a contaminated surface um, that has virus on it. Um, and then the other is going to be through smaller, large droplets that people expel from sneezing or coughing um, when you're in the vicinity of that person. Those would probably be the by far the main ways that you can um, contract one of these uh, viral infections. Yeah, I was thinking about this, you know, because uh, working out in a now more commercial gym where there are is a, a greater foot traffic than your typical powerlifting or black iron gym, I regularly witness what I would call unhygienic practices <laughs> where people will sweat, leak, or otherwise secrete things onto <laughs> surfaces that I'm then supposed to touch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when you try to find data on like how many people on average actually clean their equipment and like to what level there's some data on this. So it's not zero data, but some data, uh, suggests that only about 12% of gym users fully clean their equipment. And if you actually broaden the definition of cleaning to like partially clean it with some sort of, uh, antimicrobial agent or some sort of cleaning agent, it expands to about 20%, but that still means that like eight out of 10 people are just not wiping down their equipment in any sort of sufficient fashion. Yeah. Which, I mean, I buy that. <laughs> it's plausible. <laughs> yeah. It seems, it's like crazy to me when I see somebody, I'm like, yo, sir, you are, you are a sweaty mess right now. <laughs> in addition to like, did you expectorate? Did you cough up or like spit out any particular things while you're, you know, lifting and grunting away over there? And it's like, and now I got to touch it. 
I don't know. I think, look, if you're in a public space, uh, you know, during the, the, the winter months, particularly when folks are indoors or when the common cold is more, more common, um, good luck. <laughs> I don't know that you need to like, you know, wear gloves and, and go in there with a hazmat suit and like clean everything. But if you had the option and you're really trying to reduce your risk of like catching a cold or something, you would probably clean the equipment prior to using it. And then after, I don't know what sort of impact that would make, but it's still like, man, knowing now that most people don't clean their equipment makes me look at equipment a little bit differently. Yeah. I mean, those data are not particularly surprising to me just from uh, our own general experience being in public gyms and things like that. Not as applicable to me in my garage, but uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Do you think that more people clean their equipment than put the cart back at a shopping center? Or do you think more people return the shopping cart than clean their equipment? <laughs> I think the Venn diagrams of those groups of people are a circle. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, they overlap. Now, it's interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, or as you're alluding to, most people with one of these common colds do not have a detectable virus in their saliva. So if you go to like swab them and test it, see, you know, and try to figure, identify like, oh, do you actually have one of these things? Well, greater than 90% of people don't actually have a detectable virus uh, in their saliva, making, you know, salivary sort of contamination uh, not really a significant route of transmission for common cold viruses. But we always ask about sick contacts you know, when somebody comes into the hospital or, or whatever, is that more to get a sense of, is this person at risk of an infection that I may not be able to readily diagnose? Yeah, I think that asking about sick contacts is not necessarily as helpful to differentiate between the potential infectious causes, but rather because there are both infectious and non-infectious causes of this kind of a syndrome. In other words, if somebody comes in with a cough or a sore throat or a fever, something like that, I can generate a long list of things that can cause that collection of symptoms, some of which are due to infections. And some of which are not due to infections. For example, certain kinds of autoimmune conditions or even like lymphomas or other stuff like that can present in that way. And so if I get a history of, you know, a, a relatively brief or like an acute onset syndrome like this, and oh yeah, everybody in my household has just had this, it's been going through, okay, then my probability that they're having an infectious syndrome is way more likely. Whereas if it's like, oh, there's nobody that I've been around who's been sick, then it's not like it rules that possibility out. It's probably still the most likely, but I might be more likely to entertain non-infectious possibilities in that sort of a situation. That would be the main reason I would ask something like that. Copy that. All right. Well, let's talk about risk factors here. So the first one you put up was daycare. Like just, and, and this isn't really adults, I suppose, actually being in the daycare setting. Although if you were a, a worker in a daycare, you're effectively a Petri dish with all the children running around from various different households. But this is more so to not only the pediatric risk of infection by that intermingling, but also the parents of the kids who are in daycare. It seems like, yes, that's obviously a, an increased risk. Although there is a silver lining here. Uh, one study actually investigated whether parents had greater levels of what's called host resistance, effectively resistance to getting an infection uh, to the common cold than non-parents. Um, so this study had 800 subjects, half parents, half non-parents, and they were actually inoculated or given a nasal drop of one of the four common cold viruses and then observed to see if they got sick in the next week. Non-parents were about twice as likely to get sick as uh, parents, people with with children, suggesting that there's some sort of like immune tolerance built up by like being exposed to the 
petri dish or the sandbox it's like yeah you know, i mean the kid the kids are the vector in the situation and they're basically inoculating you they're like little little walking vaccines for these things for, as far as their parents go <laughs> i'm not yeah the parents get a little a little touch of the of the virus <laughs> and develop antibodies and then ultimately can ward that off so you know you don't necessarily have to eat the sand yourself as an adult it seems like your kids are doing enough sand eating for you and then you get a little a little benefit maybe out of that so i thought that was interesting um one of the other common things that confers some sort of increased risk of uh, getting the common cold uh, that you mentioned here is psychological stress. And I know we talk about this in many of our podcasts. We, uh, it's not that we're paying lip service to like stress, so to speak, but more like when you talk about stress, there are so many different forms of it. And it's kind of like this ever present thing in adult life. And so I don't want to gloss over it in this particular podcast. I want to talk about it a little further. Austin, when you are you know, viewing stress as a potential like increased risk factor for infectious risk, in this case, common cold, how do you conceptualize it? How do you think about the effect of stress on somebody's risk for developing the common cold? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just a subjective thing, kind of like when we talk about assessing somebody who's, you know, experiencing pain, it's a subjective experience that we ask them to tell it, tell me about it. And so similarly, uh, I might ask that kind of a question. Not, I don't routinely ask that question to anybody who has a cold, but for example, hey man, if I've been stressed, yeah, that's not like clinically useful for the most part. However, you know, we've had actually a couple questions on the forum recently, and sometimes we'll have patients who say, you know, I get really sick much more often than I think I should. And as we mentioned, you know, at the outset, it's really common. Two to three uh, of these per year in adulthood is a typical average. And that means there's going to be some who have more than that and some who have less than that, because that's how you end up with, with averages. But for people who report things like i feel like i get i'm sick all the time i'm sick a lot more often than i should be then that's probably the situ the context where i might ask about that to tell me about your things like your life stressors tell me about your exposures tell me about your sleep to see you know whether i find a glaring risk factor there um and then from there it's just a matter of assessing like what is the modifiability of this if at all some people it might be more modifiable some people it might not be modifiable in which case if it's not then we just lean even harder in all the other things that we can modify kind of like we've talked about in other contexts um you know, with cardiovascular risk and things like that. Some things you can modify, some things you can't. And as far as the things you can't modify, lean into the things you can't. Uh, so that's kind of the way I would approach this in practice, really with people who are seemingly, you know, dealing with these more often than they think they should, more often than they want to, but not just like anybody who comes in with a cold to the clinic or the hospital. I'm like, tell me about your stress. No, that's not really a routinely useful thing to do. Yeah. I just think people have a difficult time sort of making the connection between maybe this psychological sort of thing and then how it affects biology. And so we, we think that there's, or the way I think about it rather, is that there is this sort of stress event that causes a negative affective state. So feelings of like anxiety, depression, or some sort of excessive worry, um, which in turn directly has direct effects on biological processes and or behaviors that ultimately can influence somebody's disease risk. Uh, so there's, it's just all connected. We don't like bifurcate between, well, this is purely psychological and this is purely biological. It's all, you know, messy and, and jumbled together. And I think uh, if you accept that, then you can kind of see how having additional stress that affects, again, your behaviors, your mood state, your affect, all of those things, it kind of, it, it makes it, uh, it jibes a little bit better in your brain rather than thinking of, well, this is just psychological versus this is biological, which kind of goes nicely with our biopsychosocial bio model of, uh, of disease and how people experience these, these, uh, these things. Moving on, another risk factor you have listed here is sleep. You want to take people through sort of how sleep can affect uh, disease risk? 
Yeah, I mean, sleep is something we've covered a bunch previously as it relates to all sorts of different outcomes, be it performance-based, health-based, you know, relating to um, how you feel, how you function, how you adapt to training. Unsurprisingly, people who have less sleep, you know, most of the data categorized as fewer than seven hours per night compared with greater than eight hours per night, which to be clear is not necessarily a broad recommendation that we recommend everybody get more than eight hours of sleep on average. But when they stratify the data in that way, those who have less sleep or those who have impaired, you know, sleep quality, uh, you know, pre-existing sleep disturbance, untreated sleep disorders, things like that, tend to have an increased susceptibility to, to viral infections, um, and so that's something similarly that um, uh, may be more or less modifiable depending on the person's situation. People who have poor sleep hygiene, people who have undiagnosed or untreated sleep apnea, um, et cetera, that's going to be more modifiable. People who have disrupted or impaired sleep due to things like shift work and things like that, it may be a little bit tougher to, to address that, even though there's still typically some things that you can do, just not fully resolve it, at least um, in the short to medium term for, for a lot of these folks. Yeah, I think, again, similar to the psychological stress that any sort of impairment in sleep, either quantity and uh, quality, affects the body's ability to function as a well-oiled machine. Now, I don't like drawing, you know, analogies between a machine <laughs> and, and, and the body necessarily, but it's kind of like if you are, have a higher baseline rate of like inflammatory processes going on due to poor sleep, uh, if you your immune system is not up to snuff because of impaired sleep, particularly if it's chronic, I'm not worried about one night of insomnia, but like persistent insomnia, then yeah, your risk of developing some sort of infection goes up. Then that's kind of how sleep uh, impacts uh, uh, disease risk here. There are a bunch of other risk factors, you know, so effectively any underlying chronic disease, whether it's cardiovascular, lung, liver, kidney disease, diabetes, any sort of underlying immunodeficiency or immunosuppression, if you're on medications, um, that, uh, suppress the immune system's activity, malnutrition, uh, you know, that can be a, a big deal there as well, uh, particularly if people are lacking um, intake of certain nutrients or vitamins or both that contribute to immune system uh, function or, or uh, creation of new immune uh, cells. Cigarette smoking, unsurprisingly, also negatively affects people's uh, uh, immune, uh, immune function and can increase the risk of developing one of these infections or catching one of these infections. And yes, vaping as well. So people are like, well, cigarette smoking, okay, obviously is bad, but what about vaping? And even nicotine use in general, um, all of these things have some uh, effect on the body uh, systemically. And so yes, uh, in general, these things all increase risk. When we think about on the other side, are there any sort of protective factors, uh, perhaps that some people may consider risky? Exercise is at the top of the list. And I think, you know, we've done a podcast on this before. Do you remember how long ago that was? I feel like it was maybe at the start of COVID when we talked about this. Yeah, uh, we touched on exercise as it related to immune function as well as how it can um, uh, exercising after receiving an immunization can even augment uh, and improve your, your immune response to that. That was probably, you know, two or three years ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah, there's this sort of uh, concept called the J-curve or the open window hypothesis. The idea of a J-curve is that, yeah, moderate sort of activity levels, exercise levels may confer a benefit in that it reduces the risk of uh, catching, uh, catching a common cold or upper respiratory tract infection. Effectively, the exercise isn't stressful enough to sort of outstrip your resources for dealing with an infection. The open window hypothesis is a similar yet different sort of uh, uh, mechanism where, oh, if you un engage in hard, strenuous activity, you effectively suppress the immune system for a period of time, making it, you know, this the windows open for an opportunistic infection to, to be had. As far as the legitimacy of those things, 
I do want to ref, uh, uh, go over some of the data, but I think before I do that, there are some uh, considerations, some caveats we need to make. So most of the data here, particularly those that suggest that maybe exercise increases the risk of infection, is mechanistic, meaning that it's based on various immunoglobulin levels or similar sort of things you can measure in the blood, but not actual infections where people were like swabbed. Oh, yep, you do have an infection. Uh, or it's like self-reported sort of symptoms. Yeah, I have symptoms uh, of what we would otherwise classify as an upper respiratory tract infection, um, which could be due to something else. If someone has asthma, for example, an allergy, for example. Uh, and a, a bunch of this data is from the endurance world uh, where people actually participate in these large mass events with a lot of other individuals. And they, you know, if you're around a lot of people, for example, that might be a risk in and of itself. And so contrasting the effect of participation in mass, you know, sports with mass events to the actual risk of exercise itself is another sort of nuance there. And finally, there's like this survivorship bias that applies to most of this data. Effectively, the people in at high levels of sport, if we're just looking at elite athletes, for example, those might, those folks may have a reduced sort of uh, infectious risk overall, which is why they've been able to like reach the top of sport. And so much of this data is not particularly instructive. That's the sort of summary of what I just said over the last, you know, two minutes. Still, let's focus uh, on some of the data that actually looks at infections that have been measured, documented, et cetera. So one study is a large cohort of marathon runners. They found no relationship between training volume in the six months prior to the race and pre or post race upper respiratory tract infection episodes that were actually measured in the clinic. In a study of elite swimmers that were training 20 to 25 hours per week, which uh, Austin, as our resident swimming expert, seems yeah. like a lot. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. 20 to 25 <laughs> hours a week. Yeah, they, compa they compared their sort of uh, incidence of upper respiratory tract infection to sedentary controls, and there was no significant difference in clinically assessed infection rates. Uh, another study compared 115 women uh, who were previously sedentary and then started exercising five times a week for 45 minutes doing conditioning uh, versus stretching one time per week for 45 minutes. And there's a reduced risk of developing a cold in the exercisers compared to the stretchers. Uh, in another uh, meta-analysis, there uh, was a study uh, basically looking at how the frequency of exercise and how that kind of correlated to uh, incidence of colds. Those who exercised less often than twice a week were almost twice as like, likely more to develop a cold. Uh, and in another separate meta-analysis of 14 studies and over 1,300 participants, they found that exercise, which was mostly aerobic in nature, uh, found that exercise did not reduce the acute respiratory illness episode per year uh, compared to non-exercisers. There was no difference in acute respiratory infection over the study period. Uh, exercise had less severe acute respiratory tract infection symptoms and less symptomatic days, about two days less. Uh, and there was no difference in injuries because there's this whole thought that like, oh, if you're you know, sick and you exercise, you're going to have an increased risk of injury. That doesn't seem to be the case based on the meta-analysis, although that particular uh, finding uh, or study of injuries was only one study, not you know a multitude of studies. It just looks like overall exercise doesn't really have a huge effect on risk here outside of like environmental risks. Uh, potentially. So for example, if you go to the gym, crowded gym, or you go to a mass event like a marathon, yep, you're going to be around a lot of people and you don't really know all their health statuses, for example. If anything, exercise seems to reduce the severity of symptoms and maybe reduces the symptomatic days. But you know, people listen to this, the Barbell Medicine podcast, they're like, well, what about resistance training? No real data on that. 
And so I think overall, the effect of exercise on infection risk is influenced by way more factors than just the amount of exercise, including the individual's age, their current health status, their fitness level, the training load, psychological stress, travel, genetics, and again, number of contacts during the training and competition period and much, much more. Um, in general, exercise increases the amount of white blood cells, the immune system, uh, sort of functioning, uh, functional units that are present in the blood in the short term immediately after exercise. And then it decreases uh, in some of the cell lines about two hours later. Now, these changes do not really identify reduced immunity per se. That is a common claim that will be put out there. But rather, it's just a redistribution of the white blood cells into tissues where they can be more effective. We call this like enhanced immunosurveillance. So for example, if the white blood cells are just floating around in the blood, they're not really able to identify pathogens, so to speak. You want them to be concentrated in tissues where the pathogens are going to be sequestered to, for example. Yeah, anybody, and, any, anybody who tries to use white blood cell counts as a proxy for immune function doesn't know what they're talking about. So I would dismiss that if, uh, if somebody tries to make some of those claims. Yeah. Outside of extremely pathologically low levels, I would ignore that. It's pretty meaningless. Yeah. One of the probably most interesting findings you see repeated over and over again in the literature is the actual just overall incidence of upper respiratory tract infections, including the common cold, in the general population compared to athletes. And it's about the same. Five to 7% of the adult population has a yearly risk of developing at least one cold, which is the exact same in athletes. If, you, if there was this real risk, this real reliable increased risk of developing, a, you know, catching a cold or having an upper respiratory tract infection in athletes who are training hard, you'd expect to see that rate be much, much higher in athletes, especially because they're more likely to access the healthcare system. They're more likely to be in tune with their bodies and sort of feel if something is off. And so you would just expect to see this in the literature, but you just don't. So although this J-shaped curve hypothesis or the open window hypothesis relating the amount of exercise and disease risk has been accepted by athletes, coaches, and many scientists, the available evidence is insufficient to support it. Uh, and this has been heavily researched in the endurance world for over the last 40 years without a reliable signal. It's just mechanistic at this point. And outcome data, if you just isolate your analysis to that, doesn't really seem to be a thing. And so just a reminder that caution must be applied to interpreting the studies. More fitness developed from exercise likely prevents uh, increased training load or increased uh strenuous training load being a significant risk factor for exercise. And overall, I just don't view exercise as a significant risk factor for infection risk. Rather, the effect, if any, is likely positive from a symptom severity and duration standpoint, in addition to the myriad of health benefits associated with exercise overall. You, uh, you agree with that take? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. No objections. Uh, no objections. All right, we'll move on. All right. So, you know, we talked about maybe some risk factors, maybe some protective factors with exercise. What are the symptoms of a common cold? Now, most people listening to this have certainly experienced a common cold. I feel like if you're a human on this earth and you, <laughs> you're, you're an adult, you, it's highly likely you've had one, but let's just cover the symptoms real quick. Yeah. And this is not to educate people on what the symptoms are, because as you said, they probably had them, but rather to help to be, to be more helpful in terms of differentiating from other things that might require different management strategies. The symptoms are going to be super variable between people, and it's more so related to the immune system's response to the infection and not that the virus itself is causing a ton of injury and damage. And that's uh, different than certain other types of infections where the virus itself is what causes damage and symptoms and things like that. Um, and so there's a ton of variability in part because of the intensity of, uh, you know, 
uh, um, immune response, which can be related to the health of the host, their age, if they have chronic diseases, other medicines they're on, and, and even the type of virus and the load of virus with which you are inoculated when you acquire this infection can all impact the type, uh, severity, and duration of symptoms. But the most common typical symptoms include nasal discharge, which is termed rhinorrhea or nasal congestion, um, as well as a uh, dry or sore or scratchy throat. Um, this can typically be followed by the development of a cough. And the cough can unfortunately be pretty persistent. Even it can persist beyond the time frame when those other symptoms might resolve. Um, patients may also have sneezing, just you know, general tiredness, headache, discomfort in their ears, face. In general, this is all, again, that upper respiratory tract area, like from the neck upwards, not so much from the, the chest downwards, um, so to speak. So as a result, because the infection is not typically getting super deep into the body, um, fever is not super common in just run-of-the-mill colds in adults. It's possible, but not the most common sort of finding. Whereas when things do tend to get a bit deeper, then that would be a situation where we're more likely to see fevers emerge um, uh, from more of those lower respiratory tract infections. But that's a very imperfect kind of differentiating uh, uh, metric. And then the other thing I'll mention here is that a lot of people, uh, lay people as well as clinicians, put a lot of importance on the color of their, you know, drainage, you know, coming out of their nose or whatever they're coughing up. They'll say it was clear and now it's colored. So that means it's, you know, turned into a bacterial infection and I need antibiotics. That is not true. Um, it is uh, very, very, very common to have any sort of colored, you know, drainage, sputum, anything like that in the context of these infections that are still most likely to be viral. And that is not necessarily an indicator that it is bacterial uh, versus viral, such that I would be more likely or inclined to prescribe antibiotics uh, uh, to somebody. Dude, I still remember that for my intern year. It's like everybody that came in with a productive cough, they were like, well, what color was the, yeah, did they useless. say the sputum was? Completely, and I'm like, completely useless. <laughs> And that, so that it just became part of my like, uh, you know, little algorithm that would trip when somebody said that they had a, a cough. Oh, was it productive? Yes. What color was it? And it's like, the only time I care about the color is if it's red. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and if it's red, I'm like, okay, well, that, yeah, that's is it, is it, is it blood or did you just eat some jello? Those are the, <laughs> those are the next questions. Beets, after. maybe radishes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Big, big carotene energy. Um, okay. So that's the symptoms, and we talk about some risk factors. We talked about some potential protective factors as well as the definition. But how is a cold actually diagnosed? You know, if somebody comes in and sees you or saw you, you know, via telemedicine, like how would you actually go about diagnosing this? Yeah, I would just tell them to tell me what symptoms they've been experiencing from the time it started. And I'll get a sense of the duration, what the nature of the symptoms has been, what the trajectory has been, and then basically look for signs or symptoms that might pull me in a different direction. Um, and so really, that just means it's based on the person's story. And if you can do an exam, uh, you know, if you're in person doing an exam, there can be certain helpful things that would point you towards or away from from a cold. And so all the symptoms that I mentioned, if I have somebody who's coming in with, you know, a sore throat and a cough, um, maybe some nasal congestion, like that's pretty classic for this for this kind of thing, particularly if it's been going on for, you know, a few days or something like that. Now, if somebody has those same symptoms that have been progressively worsening, for like a month or two months or something like that. that's way too long for a common cold type syndrome, right? These kind of viral infections can last typically on the order of, you know, up, upwards of two weeks or so, a few, some, a tiny fraction of unlucky people might push it a bit beyond uh, two weeks, but 
getting beyond three weeks would be very, very, very unusual for this kind of thing in somebody who has uh, a, an otherwise you know, normal immune system. Now, with that said, even after those other symptoms improve, a cough on its own can persist for many weeks. And that is a pretty common thing that I might uh, encounter um, is this idea of a post-infectious cough that can last six, eight, 12 weeks after an infection and um, is not necessarily indicative of an ongoing infection. A lot of people might view it that way or treat it, and they're like, I just keep getting prescribed round after round after round of antibiotics, and it's not doing anything. It's like, well, because you don't have an infection, you just have a post-infectious cough, which unfortunately there's not a ton we can do for. It's going to suck for a few weeks to a few months, and that's kind of the way it is. Um, now, there are certain situations where I might want to actually do more advanced testing. Most of the time in these situations, I don't necessarily need to do a bunch of advanced testing. Um, if the person has that sickness and they're you know, able to kind of isolate themselves from, from other people for a sh short period of time, then they're most likely to be okay, assuming that I, I have no reason to believe their you know, immunity is compromised for any reason. They're not on immune suppressing medicines. They're not a, you know, a transplant patient or have HIV or something like that. But testing can be useful to identify certain things, um, whether if, if I suspect them um, or because I'm more worried that this is a higher risk patient. And so that's conditions like influenza, which we mentioned, the flu, which is different than the common cold, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection or COVID can be useful to diagnose in certain situations uh, uh, to differentiate from the common cold. Um, RSV or just you know strep throat, because that's uh, streptococcus is actually bacteria that needs antibiotics. Um, but that is, again, a different condition than the common cold and presents differently than the common cold in terms of the, the symptoms that the person would have. Let me, let me, let me uh, ask you a question before we head to break here. When is it necessary for somebody to see a healthcare professional if they suspect that they have a common cold? If the person suspects that they have a common cold and they are, even if they're having some of these unpleasant symptoms that we're talking about, but they are able to breathe comfortably, um, meaning that they're not having new or worsening shortness of breath and they're able to, you know, drink and keep fluids down, then most of the time I would say that that's something that people can typically run out and they'll be okay. Uh, they don't necessarily need to see a clinician for that. If somebody is having um, you know, new or progressive shortness of breath, um, if they're having difficulty swallowing, difficulty keeping fluids down, or basically any other new symptoms that are concerning to them that they want to get checked out, it's very reasonable to, to get checked out, um, basically to rule out anything uh, potentially worse going on. Yeah. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll discuss treatment and whether or not you should exercise with the cold right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. All right. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. We're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 262 with Dr. Austin Baraki. All right, we're going to talk about how upper respiratory tract infections, specifically the common cold, how they're treated. So Austin, you want to give people a lay of the land, like how, how big of a market even is like treatment for the common cold? I mean, any, anybody who has walked down uh, the aisle at their local pharmacy or even at a grocery store with a medication aisle can readily see how much, um, uh, how prevalent these cough and cold remedies and, and, and symptomatic medicines uh, there are uh, over the counter. Uh, this is an over $10 billion industry um, as it was last measured in, in 2023, which is pretty substantial, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, to give context, the supplement market uh, in the United States is about a $40 billion a year, like all everything all in. And so I, I suspect that if you actually expanded the cold and cough remedies market share to like include like neti pot, saline rinses, all sorts of other uh, treatments, you know, honey, garlic, like, you know, whatever sort of uh, thing, even homeopathic uh, type uh, remedies that this number would swell to 20, maybe $30 billion a year. The whole point is there's a lot of money here and there's a lot of different agents. Um, I want to take people through some of the more common types of treatments and how effective they, they actually are. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go through different categories of medicines and also recognizing that several of these are frequently uh, sold in combination products. And so being able to look at the label of these products and recognizing what it actually contains can be useful. Um, so the first category is going to be analgesics, which is just a, a term to uh, refer to uh, pain relieving medicines. And these most commonly are going to be acetaminophen or commonly known as Tylenol, paracetamol, um, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. These are things like ibuprofen, Aleve, naproxen, Advil, things like that. Um, now, these two general categories of analgesics are pretty much equivalent, more or less, at relieving the typical symptoms of the common cold. That might be things like headache or ear pain, general you know, aches and pains. Um, and so there's not really a strong reason to pick one over the other unless there's some other medical condition that merits you know, consideration for those things. Um, there's been randomized trials looking at patients with upper respiratory tract infections, looking at the use of acetaminophen or NSAIDs, um, and they're basically essentially equivalent and both uh, more effective than placebo uh, in relieving some of these aches and pains and generalized discomforts. But they don't really do anything to improve cough. They don't do anything to improve nasal discharge or nasal congestion, and they don't really alter the overall symptoms that people experience or the duration of cold. So this is just a purely symptom control thing. If somebody has an ache or a pain or a you know fever or something like that, that they want to treat with this, that's totally fine. Uh, but I wouldn't expect it to actually alter the trajectory of their illness. And it's not going to relieve the non-pain related symptoms like a cough or discharge congestion, et cetera. Yeah. The other thing that's important to mention here is like the treatment of fever, right? Because people are like, oh, I got a fever. I should take Tylenol or I should take some sort of antipyretic to reduce the fever, which as we've learned over the years, is probably not the best course of management. Your immune system works better when it's hot. The problem is that having a fever is uncomfortable in general. And so yeah. I can understand why people want to treat this. But if you were just looking at like a symptom duration, symptom severity sort of standpoint, taking an antipyretic like Tylenol, for example, uh, to reduce your fever tends to actually prolong the symptom duration and not really do anything with the severity outside of the unpleasant of the fever. And so I don't feel super strongly about people not treating a fever 
you know, if you're really uncomfortable, I'm like, look, man, an extra six hours of symptoms, like, <laughs> I don't know that I care that much. But at the same time, you just have to know that fevers in general are uncomfortable and that's okay. Treating it doesn't necessarily actually improve uh, anything other than the sort of symptomatic experience. Yeah, that's the main situation in which I'll treat a fever is when it's uncomfortable or when the nurse is insisting upon treating a fever <laughs> but in the hospital setting. But otherwise, I don't go out of my way to treat them if it doesn't bother the patient. I think the data as far as it like prolonging things is, is kind of mixed. So I similarly don't feel super strongly about treating it or not treating it. Um, but if somebody's not uncomfortable from it, I'll let it ride for sure. It's okay to be uncomfortable uh, from this kind of thing too. <laughs> yeah, it's just that people when they're like, oh, I have a fever or a mild fever. That's my favorite because I have a mild right. fever. I'm like, well, what? what is, what is it? What's the temperature? And they're like, it's 99 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm like, yeah. well, I don't necessarily think you should treat this, but if you have some other discomfort <laughs> that we need to like, yeah. maybe treat with one of these analgesics, I might allow that anyway. Sure. All right, let's move on to some other categories here. Yeah. So the next is going to be antihistamines. Uh, this is medicines like diphenhydramine or Benadryl. People might've heard of cetirizine, loratadine, fexafenidine, Allegra, you know, all those, the, those types of, of medicines. These are essentially, the bottom line is that these are of minimal to no benefit from the common cold. And they frequently result in undesirable side effects. Um, in particular, uh, the more sedating antihistamines like diphenhydramine or ben commonly known as Benadryl, um, this can have some small symptomatic benefits because it has what are what we call anticholinergic effects, which can reduce things like secretions. So it might help to dry up, quote unquote, your, your runny nose a little bit. But when this has been examined um, in a 2015 Cochrane review of uh, 18 randomized trials, they found that there was a tiny beneficial effect on like day one or two of your illness if you use these things, and then not really any benefit beyond that to day three, four, or six days and, and beyond, there wasn't really any benefit. And then the other side of this is that these medicines can be sedating, which actually, you know, a lot of the over-the-counter cough and cold medicines kind of take advantage of this. This is like when you see Tylenol PM, for example, or Advil PM. The PM is just because it has Benadryl in it and it knocks you out at night. That's the most common way that they do that. But by knocking you out, it can, you know, the, the, the other effects of that mechanism, it can lead to constipation. In older adults, it can lead to confusion, urinary retention, things like that. Not the most common thing that I see in, you know, your average, you know, middle-aged otherwise healthy person, but in older patients, for sure, I do see some of these things that, that can crop up. So bottom line with antihistamines, I don't think they do much of anything. I don't think they're generally worth using. Um, people will still use the PM meds more so for sleep than they do for, for anything else. And, you know, I don't recommend using those kind of medicines for sleep in the long term. If it's something you want to do for a day or two, it's not going to, you know, I'm not going to get too torn up about that, but not something I would recommend for sustained use. And I'm not impressed by their effects on uh, common colds. Yeah. And then with respect to sleep, it's just, it messes with the sleep architecture in similar ways that alcohol does. So it's not that the sleep that you're getting, yeah, it's more sleep duration wise, but as far as the, uh, you know, quality of said sleep, that's probably not something that you wanted to use long-term. But again, due to the low efficacy overall for common cold or upper respiratory tract infection in general, I think people are maybe dissuaded from using this as it were. But what about like, what about congestion? Because that's going to be a big problem. People are like, ah, my nose is stuffed up. Like, what do I do? Yeah, let's talk about nose stuff. So decongestants as a category, typically they act by vasoconstriction, basically making the blood vessels squeeze a little bit tighter, making them less leaky um, so that there's less swelling and congestion in that area. And this can be done either with topical treatment, meaning like a nasal spray, for example, that you can apply to the area, and that can either relieve congestion. And actually there are other kinds of nasal sprays as far as nasal symptoms go that can relieve the, the nasal drainage. Um, or it, there can be oral medicines, oral medicines that lead to this kind of vasoconstriction and relieve congestion. 
with the oral medicines, there are really two. One is phenylephrine, and phenylephrine is one that's extremely common in these cough and cold medicines that people get over the counter. If you look at whatever box you have of like, you know, daytime cough cold medicine in your in your cabinet, it's probably got phenylephrine in it. This drug is not effective. It is ineffective for treating rhinitis, congestion, or any other symptom from the common cold. There's been randomized trials looking at uh, this drug ranging from 10 milligrams, which is a common dose in over-the-counter products, up to, up to 40 milligrams with no impact on symptoms. And this was approved decades ago, but it took until this past September, so what, two months ago, where an FDA committee had a meeting and concluded it to be no more effective than placebo. And this was all over the news at the time, that like this drug that was approved all these years ago, commonly used doesn't do anything. So in general, phenylephrine, I don't, uh, I don't recommend it. However, there is a different oral decongestant that does have some efficacy, and that is oral pseudoephedrine. Um, and so this is what is commonly known as Sudafed. The tricky thing is that whatever company makes that, they also made Sudafed PE. And Sudafed PE is phenylephrine, which does not work. <laughs> so if you're going to get it, you have to get actual Sudafed or pseudoephedrine, which is effective for reducing the symptoms of nasal congestion. It doesn't really have any effect on non-nasal you know, symptoms. But this drug, as po- folks might remember from about 15-ish years ago, it was taken, quote unquote, behind the counter, um, it, meaning it's not readily available over the counter or just on the aisles because this drug can be used to ma- manufacture meth. <laughs> so people were like buying it up in large quantities and I guess cooking the stuff up. So um, it's a little bit more restricted to, to get. Because it tends to constrict blood vessels um, and has generally a more kind of sympathetic or or stimulating type effect, uh, it can lead to increases in blood pressure, it can lead to insomnia, and it can also lead to urinary retention, particularly in people who are prone to that. So maybe your older folks who have, you know, huge prostates or who are on other meds that can increase the risk of of urinary retention. This is something else that can happen. So those are the two oral decongestants, phenylephrine or pseudoephedrine, one of which is effective, the other is not. And then topical decongestants, nasal sprays, really this is oxymetazoline is the main one that we uh, know of. This is commonly known as Afrin. This is one that you spray directly onto the nasal mucosa and has a potent vasoconstrictive effect, meaning it can lead to relief of that congestion. The problem is that this can wear off relatively quickly, leading to people to want to reuse it in relatively short order. And this begins, a pr- and, and it can have a rebound congestion effect. So this leads to a pretty vicious cycle of nasal congestion, relief, congestion, relief. It gets worse and worse and worse, leading to pretty much like dependency on this nasal spray. And this is a condition known as rhinitis medicamentosa. I don't know why they use that term, probably from Latin or something, but that's what it's known as. Very common actually for people who overuse this medicine. So we typically just have to get people to stop and wean off this. So this is a drug that is effective um, if somebody wants to use it, but I get them to use it like pretty much a max of like three days, not any more than that, and using it as infrequently as they possibly can, because I want to mitigate the risk of that rebound congestion and them getting pretty dependent on it. And then the last medicine I'll mention here, the other topical nasal spray is Ipratropium. Ipratropium is uh, another nasal spray that is not so much for congestion, but rather for the drainage, rhinorrhea and and things like that, which can be useful. This would be a prescription spray um, uh, that can lead to, that can improve that. Although side effects can include, you know, the other, the other extreme, it can lead to significant nasal dryness and and some nosebleeds and things like that if you use it. So those are the main decongestion and like nasal type uh, meds uh, that are that are used, most of which are not super effective, a couple of which have some efficacy, which may or may not be worth it to you. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'll add here is that the pseudoephedrine, pseudofed, um, is actually considered uh, to be an adverse analytical finding with respect to like drug testing in drug tested sports if they um, use the WADA band list. Um, 
So there's a, it's a threshold detection thing. So if you have taken it enough and your urine concentrations, I think it's like five, it's five something. I don't know the units offhand, <laughs> but effectively, I, and I also don't know that if you take Sudafed once, for example, if that gives you that urinary concentration to trip the finding, but it's also uh, one of those things that you'd either have to have a therapeutic use exemption for, or if you were just taking it, you could potentially uh, test positive on a, on a drug test, which would be bad. I'm pretty sure I've heard stories of people who, you know, they use that as an excuse for why they popped positive when they're really taking something else. You know, the, yeah. the fallback story. I was just taking Sudafed. He's like, bro, no, that's methylphenidate, sir. That's a different, <laughs> <laughs> different, different medication. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So that, you know, we talked about decongestants. We talked about antihistamines. We talked about pain relievers, the analgesics. Uh, what about the cough? You know, we spent a lot of time talking about how, how long the cough can last, how annoying it is. You know, is there any good treatment for cough suppression in this setting? Yeah, this is this is the big one um, that I think is worth getting into a little bit because this is one of the most common reasons why people will come in or, or or ask for help. I think if you go way back, this is where I did do a little bit of history. Uh, the the OG you know cough treatments were actually opioids. So morphine was discovered in like the early 1800s, and not only was it used as a pain reliever, but it became used as a treatment for chronic cough. Um, much later in the century. Um, in 1898, diacetylmorphine was synthesized by this German chemist named Felix Hoffman. He's the same guy who actually synthesized aspirin uh, for the Bayer company that sold Bayer aspirin. I thought the willow bark thing, what happened to that dude? Pliny, I just, in my brain, Pliny the Elder was like, you know, scratching up against a tree or something. It was right. like, yeah. willow bark. <laughs> yeah, that's where salicylic acid comes from. And then acetylsalicylic acid had to be obviously synthesized, and that's what led to aspirin. But this guy came up with this diacetylmorphine, which was viewed at the time as a safer alternative for the addictive drug known as morphine. And it was marketed by Bayer as a cough suppressant and a pain oh reliever starting in 1898 under the brand name heroin. Oh boy. <laughs> so that's What's what diacetylmorphine is. <laughs> What's the generic? Yeah, it's diacetylmorphine. Can yeah, you imagine so- if you were watching The Wire and instead of them being like, you know, what is it? <laughs> WMD, whatever. That's right. They're like, <laughs> diacetyl. Uh- <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so at one time, believe it or not, heroin was marketed as a, as a cough suppressant that was uh, safe and effective um, many, many years ago. So um, fortunately, we have moved on from those days. Uh, more recently, codeine is a drug that has been viewed as a useful uh, treatment for, for cough. It's an alkaloid that's deriv- derived from poppy extracts. And it's actually been considered for a long time the gold standard cough suppressant. Unfortunately, evidence does not really support this. Codeine is converted to morphine in the liver. And so it's basically the same as these other drugs. It's It delivers an opioid type effect. The problem with codeine is that there is highly variable metabolism between people. So the way our livers process it and activate it into morphine is super variable. So codeine is basically a trash drug. I have not prescribed it in many, many, many years um, because it's basically like giving somebody, it's like blindfolding yourself and giving somebody a dose of morphine that you don't know what it is because it's unpredictable. And so um, this is also, this has itself been investigated for cough. One study looked at it um, at doses of 30 milligrams in a single dose or a total daily dose of 120 milligrams in divided doses. And it didn't really show any greater efficacy than placebo for treating cough. Other, another study looked at codeine 50 milligrams compared to placebo for cough. Again, no effect greater than, than placebo. And of course, opioids um, have tons of potential negative side effects, sedation, nausea, constipation, dependency, things like that. So I don't recommend using codeine. I don't recommend using morphine, and I don't recommend using heroin to treat your cough from an acute respiratory <laughs> respiratory tract infection. To be clear, don't use heroin. Okay, there you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's move on. So another commonly prescribed treatment for cough is a drug 
called benzonitate, more commonly known as Tessalon pearls. The pearls uh, describes the actual formulation that it comes in. If you look it up, it looks kind of like a little gusher, uh, and that's what contains the drug. And so this drug is a sodium channel blocker, and that leads to it having supposedly anesthetic type effects on these stretch receptors in your lung. So by numbing the stretch receptors in your lung, it's thought to mute uh, the cough that you get. It was initially approved like 70-ish years ago, uh, back in the 1950s, but it's had really very few studies of its efficacy, and yet I see it prescribed all the time. It's a prescription-only uh, non-narcotic uh, anti-cough uh, medicine, and so it's actually being prescribed more and more because of those reasons. When I went back looking for actual studies on the effectiveness of this drug, I found only a couple. In 1958, they um, did experimental cough by spraying acetylcholine into people's lungs who were otherwise healthy. So experimental cough is not really generalizable to people who have actual respiratory tract infections. And then they treated them with IV benzonitate. And so that's not something that exists these days, as far as I'm aware. Um, and so it was not generalizable. So I promptly threw that data away. The one guy in that study who got an oral dose did not have any benefit. The other aspect of that study, they treated people at very high doses in a sanitarium who had tuberculosis, which is also a very different situation and would not apply it here. Then like 40 years later in the late 1990s, there was a study of three patients with cancer-related cough. So don't love the applicability of that one. And then another one in 2009, where they also did experimental cough, spraying capsaicin into people's airways, which sounds very unpleasant, a way to provoke cough. <laughs> and then it looked at reflex, cough reflex sensitivity and, and found you know that this can potentially, again, that idea of numbing the receptors that lead to cough a little bit. So none of that is particularly generalizable to the situation we're dealing with now with acute cough from a respiratory tract infection. The problem with this drug, as I mentioned, is that it's a sodium channel blocker, and that is a very, very potentially toxic mechanism. Uh, sodium channels are important for a ton of different processes in the body, including our hearts functioning and our brains functioning. And so there have been increasing reports in recent years through poison center data and toxicology data of benzonitate uh, toxicity, not combination, some you know, intentional overdoses and many not intentional overdoses, but it doesn't take more than a small handful taking of these at once. And because they come in that pearl format, they're like little mini gushers that they can get into the stomach, burst open and get absorbed really rapidly. Um, then it can lead to toxicity, uh, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, sudden cardiac death, seizures. And that can happen on the order of like, you know, 10 to 20 minutes, it can lead to death really, really quickly. So this is a drug that I'm actually a lot more cautious about ever since I learned about these things. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is called The Poison Lab. It's a toxicology podcast. That's where I first learned about this. And I've uh, rapidly incorporated that into my practice to not prescribe this in large quantities if I prescribe it at all. Um, sometimes patients are so desperate for anything uh, that they can try that you know you might end up on this and you say, hey, maybe there's a theoretical mechanism by which this could help, but I don't tend to prescribe very large quantities of this or long durations of this. And I certainly don't use it for, for chronic cough uh, because of these potential toxicity risks. Even if somebody lives with a child in the house, that's how many of these horrific stories have, have happened. If a pet gets to this stuff, if you unintentionally take more than, you know, more than a, a couple of these, there's, there's pretty high risk of this. And so when I think about potential risks and potential benefits, like potential risks of like, you know, rapid death, seizures, coma versus potential benefits of like, a theoretical mechanism of maybe this might help reduce your your cough, but I'm not even convinced of that. Then the the, the uh, benefit risk is pretty asymmetric there, and I'm not I don't love this drug. Is the bottom line? Yeah. No, I remember uh, during intern year it, that this was the thing. They're like, yeah, you can you can prescribe Teslon pearls if you want to give them a placebo, and I was like, I I don't know that that that's a great 
trade-off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not even knowing the risk, uh, you know, because I don't think that's, to my knowledge, not necessarily well-established. It's not. Like, yeah. Yeah. I teach this frequently and pretty much nobody that I teach about this is aware of it. So <laughs> yeah. All right. I feel better then. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about next, the, what about Tussin? Yeah. So the next drug is dextromethorphan, which is a mouthful, commonly known as things like Robitussin or Delsim. And this drug is also commonly incorporated as part of other combination products as well. It's by far the most commonly, most widely used over-the-counter cough medicine. Um, and like I said, about upwards of 90% of these over-the-counter cough medicines contain this drug. It works by theoretically inhibiting the NMDA receptor, which is a you know glutamate receptor in the in the nervous system, and similarly is thought to reduce the sensitivity of cough receptors. And so maybe it has some central effect, you know, on cough in your brain, central nervous system, and some peripheral effects in those receptors in your lung. No, nope, we don't really know. Um, it was approved in the 1950s as well, based on a few clinical trials that showed a small benefit, but those trials did not have placebo arms for comparison, and didn't really use validated outcome measures. And that's part of the problem with looking at this cough data because some studies look at it in terms of experimental cough, like I said, spraying irritating things down into people's lungs who are healthy and seeing what it does. Others is like having people count their coughs, and then there's some like more objective measures. And so the data is pretty mixed on all of these sorts of interventions. In, in the year 2000, a randomized trial of 43 adults with acute cough from a respiratory infection looked at the effect of 30 milligrams of dexamethorphan and found basically little to no clinical benefit to its use. Um, there's been other studies that show some benefit, some that don't. The, the overall body of evidence here is generally poor in quality. Not a lot of well-powered studies, not a lot that look at the kind of more objective outcomes in a generalizable way, meaning looking at caught the burden of cough in people with an actual respiratory infection, not necessarily in people who were spraying capsaicin into their lungs or something like that. And so even in those that do show like a statistically significant benefit, it tends to be pretty small and, and inconsistent. And with this drug, the other consideration with dextromethorphan is that it does have a potential for misuse because when you take a really high dose of this drug, it tends to produce a sensation of euphoria, relaxation, intoxication. So dextromethorphan is something that actually is used recreationally. And uh, toxicity from this drug, from people who use really high doses, it can lead to agitation, hallucinations, psychosis, seizures, coma, um, hyper high blood pressure, rhabdomyolysis, and uh, leads to about 6,000 ER visits a year in the US. So overall, I would say that uh, of all the cough medicines, if I had to pick one with the most evidence of potential benefit, I would say it's probably dextromethorphan, depending on how you measure cough. But as you might be able to tell, that isn't really saying much. There's pretty variable results depending on how cough is measured, whether drug is given in the form of a capsule or a pill versus as a syrup. Because if you take something as a syrup, it can even have like a direct, you know, a, a, a topical soothing effect on an irritated throat that might impact independent of any drug related effect, um, which is kind of similar because, you know, we also have data looking at the use of honey, for example, and honey seems to actually have a pretty beneficial effect, particularly in kids, which is a situation where you might want to use that instead of some of these potential drugs with more potential toxicity. And that may just be due to the simple coating and soothing effect of having this like thick syrupy, you know, substance on an irritated and sore throat. So overall, I'm not super confident in the benefits of this drug, but if I had to pick one, it'd be this. Um, but I don't love it still. If that yeah. if that wasn't clear already, yeah, yeah, big big honey coming through with the uh, <laughs> with the fix here. You know, my overall impression based on the medications we talked about: analgesics, we talked about decongestants, cough suppressants, also you know, a bunch of different classes of drugs with different mechanisms. My interpretation of what you've said so far is that none of them really work very well. Correct. When I say, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but just for the listeners at home, we're rehashing all of this sort of uh, pharmacological data. Not to impress upon you our 
medical fund of knowledge or say a bunch of big three syllable words, but rather like, you know, these, this is the best the pharmaceutical industry has to offer. And there's a lot of money to be made here. So even if you were a cynic, right. And you're like big pharma, big pharma is trying to take over. These things don't work very well, even though there's a vested interest in making them work well. The, you know, which should sort of get your spidey sense tingling. Like if big pharma with effectively unlimited resources can't figure this out, what, what do you think that you're, you know, the, the homemade recipe or therapy or whatever other sort of, you know, treatment intervention that Huberman's going to come up with on his protocol is, is likely to work. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I, I look, there was a comment on there. It was a, no, you take a hair dryer and you blow it at this particular point on your spine and it's going to relieve symptoms like citation source, <laughs> like, come on now. So, all right, let's wrap this up here with some, uh, some of the mucinex stuff and some of these vitamins. Cause people, people are going to want to know. Yeah. So the next one is, is, uh, the category of expectorant, which is a term that's pretty vague. The really, the only FDA approved one of this class is guaifenesin, which is commonly known as mucinex. And the thought of expectorants is that it can increase the clearance of mucus, be it from your lungs, from your airways, et cetera. It's also extremely common in over-the-counter cough and cold products. You look at most of them, they'll have guaifenesin in them. The exact mechanism of this drug isn't really well understood. It's thought that it may increase the volume of secretions uh, and decreasing the viscosity of those secretions. So it makes it maybe easier for you to clear them. Again, it's a little weird to me, especially when I see drugs that combine things like an expectorant like this, which is thought to increase the volume of these secretions so that you can get it out and then also pair it with a cough suppressant medicine. But this is super common to see these together. It's like an illogical drug combination. But fortunately, since neither of them do anything, people buy it and, you know, they can maybe feel better. So despite the, despite the availability of guaifenesin or mucinex in a ton of different over-the-counter uh, preparations, the benefit is pretty unclear. There's a 2014 Cochrane Systematic Review concluded no good evidence for or against the effectiveness of over-the-counter medicines, including guaifenesin alone or in combination with other treatments for acute cough. The other side of this equation, though, is that the risk of this medicine is like pretty much non-existent. And so here, I don't have that like asymmetric risk like we did with benzonitate, where here I really don't care if you want to take it. I just, I don't think it's doing anything, but I also, it's very, very, very unlikely to harm you. Um, but yeah, so uh, not impressed with uh, mucinex. I don't personally take it whenever I get, uh, an, I don't really take anything when I get one of these upper respiratory infections outside of like an NSAID if I'm uncomfortable. Um, but uh, yeah, so not much here. The last couple things we'll talk about um, is zinc is a common one that is cited. And the idea is that zinc administered within 24 hours of the onset of cold symptoms um, might reduce the duration of your common cold by about a day, maybe a day and a half if you're lucky in healthy people. But again, the data here is pretty heterogeneous, meaning there's a wide variation in the results that we see. This is for a variety of reasons, but there are a lot of different forms of zinc. You can get it in the form of a lozenge, a syrup, a tablet. There's intranasal zinc sprays, things like that. One of the potential problems is if you do sustained zinc supplementation over time, um, it can interfere with absorption of copper from the diet. And so zinc supplementation is actually a known cause of copper deficiency. Uh, so that's some, a reason why I would not take zinc on an ongoing basis as a preventative for something like this. I would just like deal with the cold because I would not want to experience the consequences of copper deficiency. Um, and then the last thing is intranasal zinc products like Zycam, just do not use them. Uh, there is a pretty dramatic potential risk with these medicines um, leading to permanent loss of smell. You use these for, for a, a cough or a cold, and you might lose your sense of smell forever. It's irreversible. So there was a, this led to an FDA public advisory against these products. So that is definitely a risk that I would not want to take. Um, so overall with zinc products, 
eh, if you want to use a zinc lozenge, uh, use those like zinc sulfate lozenges or something immediately at the onset of a cold thinking you're going to shorten your symptoms by a day, fine. I wouldn't take them chronically. I wouldn't take it as a preventative, um, nor would I use intranasal products ever. Gotcha. Yeah. Anosmia is uh, not something to mess around with. If you prefer to smell things, taste things, you know, exactly <laughs> all, all of your faculties about you, um, you know, people are going to invariably ask about vitamin C and, and, you know, I have, having looked into this before, I'm aware of small data sets showing, oh, maybe some potential benefit for vitamin C. And people's like, see, see, look, all vitamins aren't, it's not all BS, Jordan. And it's like, yeah, but look at the outcome, dude. Just like, look at the, the magnitude of effect and then ask yourself, is this really worth not only the resources that you have to expend, going, getting the thing, paying for the thing, but also the potential risk of contamination, potential risk of, you know, infecting somebody else as you go get this thing. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, like, so this meta-analysis that you cited here, a 2013 meta-analysis, 29 trials, 11,000 people shows a small but significant reduction in duration of cold symptoms, a whopping 8%. If the average cold lasts four or five days of symptoms, 8% reduction is nothing. <laughs> Effectively to me, that is a rounding error. Like people are like, ooh, was it seven hours or eight hours? Was it six? You know, it's like, what, dude? Why does this matter? You know, and, and in addition to like vitamin C doing effectively nothing else outside of those who actually need supplemental vitamin C, it's like, who cares? So people are going to get this like emergency. I need emergency. Go get, you know, bat down the hatches. Give me the emergency. It's like, bro, dude, isn't, you know, if you want to placebo yourself, fine. It is, it is fascinating to see the, the belief that people have in these products and the zeal with which they will pursue them and take them immediately at the onset, thinking they're going to have a dramatic difference. I think similarly with vitamin C. You know, if you want to take a, some of this at the immediate outset of your symptoms and maybe buy yourself a few hours, like if that's something you're willing to do, fine. I'm just not impressed by those effects. And um, I would not expect drastic effects. The other problem here, and, and this is worth just mentioning in terms of big picture before our last little section here, is that um, people will try things and convince themselves of their benefit. And that's something we saw in that comment thread. People will swear by certain things. You cannot determine that efficacy for yourself. It is not a rigorous, it is not a controlled trial. Of course, people will say, I don't care. It worked for me. You don't know that it worked for you. The common refrain is that if you treat your cold, it'll get better in a week. If you don't treat your cold, it'll get better in seven days, right? And then people, people will refer to the last time I get sick, it lasted two weeks. This time I took this and it got better in short order. It's like, there are a lot of other variables. Like you may have gotten infected by a different virus. You might have had a lower viral inoculum that you got sick with. You might've been in a different immune state this time compared to like, there's so many other more plausible reasons why you might've had a more severe or less severe illness this time compared to last time or vice versa. So that's why we prefer to have more compelling, more rigorous data to make a claim that something works, particularly if we're going to claim that it is like a cure, that it works every time, that I took it and I was back on my feet the next day or something like, I mean, you will see all these claims. So yeah, not impressed overall vitamin C. Similarly, the, the risk is not horrific if you want to take, if you want to take it, of course, there's a, you know, depends on the dose that you want to take up front, but um, I'm not expecting or or, you know, of the belief that this has dramatic effects for the treatment of the common cold. Yeah, I don't care. Like if people are like, I want to take vitamin C, I'm like, okay, fine. But but I'm not going to fight somebody on it unless they're going to yeah. take like a mega dose of yeah. it, right? And then I'm like, yeah, I feel more strongly that that's uh, probably a bad move. But I'm not going to fight you on it. 
just make sure that they're third-party tested. There should be a USP label on the thing, NSF label, informed for sport or some other sort of third-party testing just to make sure that it's actually vitamin C and not some actual you know, agent that you don't want to be taking. Um, but yeah, and don't megadose it. More isn't better. The appropriate dose is, you know, would be better. And people are like, oh, what's the appropriate dose of vitamin C? It's like, we don't know because it doesn't work. <laughs> That's the thing you want to be I would, to tell you. I would just, I would just prefer you get vitamin C from your diet. You know, there, there's yeah. studies looking at like supplementing an eight gram mega dose, like on day one and stuff like that. And it's like, fine, I don't recommend it, but if you want to. <laughs> yeah, Lin- Linus Pauling has entered the chat, you know, vitamin yeah, C exactly. as a panacea. <laughs> just yeah. 200 milligrams a day. If that, if you need me to recommend a dose, sure. But more than that, just no, dude, just stop, do something else. Uh, all right. What about vitamin D? Cause people, God. People love vitamin D. I don't understand why. Like vitamin D's had the mo- biggest glow up of any vitamin that there is. It's like, why? Not this, let, maybe let's let's not do a, let's do a, do a rant. Just tell people <laughs> that vitamin D doesn't work for <laughs> curing the common cold. This will not die, despite our best efforts. Um, I bet you know a lot of people listening right now are still convinced that they take vitamin D for their quote unquote immunity, um, or that it helps them, especially if they take it right when they get sick. Which even like the kinetics of how vitamin D you know impacts your blood levels is not even that fast. So, um, the best data that I can point to here is a 2021 Lancet meta analysis by Joliff Joliff. I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, and their colleagues. This was an update to a very commonly cited 2017 paper from Martineau, and we previously reviewed that paper in June 2020 for when we did our research review. This was an update that of to the meta-analysis that incorporated a way larger data set. So these researchers did a very impressive feat. They found 40, over 40 randomized controlled trials, and they went to each of these trials and retrieved individual subject level data. So they went to these researchers if they had not reported individual subject and asked them for it and then used that to compile their meta-analysis. So they retrieved uh, data on 98% of subjects from all the trials that they could find. This resulted in 43 randomized trials of vitamin D supplementation in 48,488 patients. So almost 50,000 patients included in this meta-analysis. Now, there's a few different ways that they dissected this data, and I'm only going through this because I want to, our, 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 our futile attempt to, to put this to bed. The overall risk of res- acute respiratory infections in people who supplemented vitamin D was 61.3%. The overall risk of acute respiratory infections in the placebo group was 62.3%. So there's a 1% absolute risk difference between people who are supplementing vitamin D on an ongoing basis versus those who are taking placebo. This is not nothing, but it is certainly not the miracle preventative that a lot of people cite it as. People who say, I don't need you know, to do anything you know, for risk mitigation for the risk of infection, say even flu or COVID or anything else to say, I don't need an immunization because I take vitamin D. The idea that it has this gargantuan protective effect is just not supported by these data. And these are in, you know, likely to be the same types of people who will issue other sorts of treatments, be it like lipid lowering therapy for cardiovascular disease. I don't need that. The, the, the risk reduction is so low, it's unlikely to benefit me. Yet they claim that vitamin D is doing huge things with this very, very, very trivial uh, benefit. When they did subgroup analyses in this, uh, in this study, and I think these are actually quite informative because the next thing that you might say is, okay, so the overall data wasn't really impressive, um, you know, 61.3 versus 62.3. What about, did it differ depending on people's baseline vitamin D status? And this was also looked at. 
So they stratified people based on those who had baseline vitamin D levels in nanomoles per liter of 25 hydroxy vitamin D of less than 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 75, or greater than 75. Again, this is nanomoles per liter, not the usual um, uh, 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 units used in the US, but that's used internationally. And overall, there was no difference in the benefits across all of these different uh, uh, quartiles of uh, vitamin D status. And then they looked at other subgroups. They looked at what if you were, you know, by age. With respect to age, they broke it down into kids less than one year old, one to 16, 16 to 65, or greater than 65. Weirdly, the only group that had a benefit in this data was kids that were one year old to 16. So any all the patients 16 to 65, which is probably most of those who were listening, as well as those over 65, did not enjoy a benefit of vitamin D supplementation. Then you might wonder, what about the dose? Was you know because they could have been doing too low of a dose and they needed more. Well, they looked at less than 400 IU's, 400 to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000, or greater than 2,000. The only group that had any benefit was those supplementing 400 to 1,000 units daily. If they supplemented weekly or bolus doses once every few months, no benefit. So the higher doses didn't do anything. It was really just this weird you know signal in the 400 to 1,000 IU group who were one year old to 16 years old who took it daily but not weekly. <laughs> and independent of their baseline vitamin D status. And so this is why I just cannot care about the use of vitamin D for preventing respiratory infections, for certainly not for treating them um, in, the, in the acute phase. Yet people are going to continue citing data that we have talked about at length before, where they'll find you know severity of respiratory illness was inversely correlated to vitamin D status, because as we've talked about, the sicker you are, the lower your vitamin D levels tend to be. That's the sickness driving the level down, not, not, the, uh, not the other way around. There was similarly, when they looked at secondary outcomes in these data, they looked at you know things like What's the risk of lower respiratory tract infections? What's the risk of missing school, missing work, going to the ER, getting hospitalized, dying due to your respiratory infection, dying in general? No difference on any of these secondary outcomes in this data, which was, again, almost 50,000 patients supplementing vitamin D versus not. Just such a minuscule effect that is not worth it to me. It may be worth it to you. That's fine. But do not claim that this is uh, a, you know, groundbreaking sort of thing, that everybody should be taking it, that it is a cure-all, that it prevents all sorts of things, that you should do this over, I don't know, washing your hands or something like this. But, you know, unfortunately, this topic will never die. No, it just, again, I'm not going to fight somebody if they're like really gung-ho on vitamin D. Again, making sure that it's not, it's, you know, it's from a batch-tested sort of manufacturer and uh, whatever, and that people aren't overdosing this and, uh, you know, hypercalcemia isn't occurring. I just can't care but I don't think it does anything. Same thing with vitamin C. It's like, whatever, you want to placebo yourself, that's fine. We can add some Teslon pearls on top of that, just don't know <laughs> many of it. All right. Uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's most of the things that I wanted to talk about, at least. <laughs> All right, so here's how we're going to wrap this podcast up. We're going to talk about the age-old question, is it okay to exercise with a cold? That's what people, you know, they're like, we get these questions all the time. Is it okay to exercise with a cold, upper respiratory tract infection? And so the way I'll start this off is, first, just thinking about the public health risk. If you have active symptoms of any type of infection, you're sneezing, you're coughing, if you have a fever, which again is not necessarily correlated with a common cold, for example, if you have any one of these symptoms, my recommendation would be to stay at home if you have to train in a public place. The idea is that while it may not be harmful to you, the individual, to actually participate in exercise, get your training in, and you may prefer that from a psychological standpoint and also obviously for your your training in general, the risk to infecting other people who may not have that same sort of calculus as you for your personal benefits, for their risk of infection or other family members that they could potentially transmit that to, 
I would uh, sort of rule in the favor of the other people in this particular case. If you have a home gym, that doesn't apply to you. But if you're training a public place, would definitely consider what the public health risk actually is. As far as data goes on, you know, exercising during a uh, cold, the, there's not a lot of actual data here. Uh, one study showed that there was a reduced duration of upper respiratory tract infection in those who were physically fit compared to sedentary. That's surprising to absolutely nobody. As far as actually training during an active illness, there's like one research group that has gone like gone hard on this. Uh, Weidner and his, uh, their research group, the first time they actually had a naturally acquired uh, respiratory tract infection, they looked at folks who were previously sedentary, who weren't exercising before. These folks caught a, uh, ha- caught a common cold, an upper respiratory tract infection. They were randomized into either exercising five times a week for 30 minutes at 70% of their target heart rate or their max heart rate versus no exercise. Effectively, there was no difference in symptom severity or duration of illness suggesting that exercise wasn't this like additional stressor that was compromising people's ability to recover from the illness. They did a second study uh, where they actually infected these individuals with rhinovirus, which again, just just imagine signing up for a study where, where you don't really know what's going on at first. And then they're like, hey, so we're going to give you this uh, infectious agent and uh, <laughs> make you exercise, see what happens. It's like, a, hopefully the compensation was, was exactly. I'm wondering what the incentives were. <laughs> yeah. But same sort of same sort of setup. They had one group uh, who had the active infection with rhinovirus that they did in the lab exercise five times a week, 30 minutes, 70% of their max heart rate. The other group did no exercise. There was no uh, significant difference in the symptom severity or duration of illness. Um, but when you actually look at like from additional data outside of this particular research group on like what happens if you exercise with the common cold that's being diagnosed either via clinical assessment or some sort of laboratory finding, you're just going to come up empty for the most part. Just not a lot of data here. And the, in general, most authorities in this area will recommend that if an individual has symptoms of a common cold with no systemic involvement, so no fever, muscle aches, swollen lymph nodes, et cetera, regular training can be resumed a few days after the resolution uh, of, of, of uh, the symptoms and mild exercise during the sickness does not appear to be contraindicated. This is all made up, of course. Like that, this doesn't come from anything. It's not like, oh, large data sets showing that you have to reduce intensity when you exercise is actually beneficial for either symptom severity, symptom duration. It's all just made up. So our personal recommendation, barbell medicine recommendation that absolutely no one asked for, uh, for our clinical practice guidelines, but nonetheless, here they are. We recommend exercise to tolerance. If the program that you have in front of you for a particular day uh, that you're going to exercise in your own isolated area seems like something you can do, great. If you have to reduce the weight a little bit or a lot of it, fine too. If you prefer to defer a training day to a few days later and you just want to do some conditioning in place for your GPP work, also fine. All of those things are going to be fine. And if you happen to just miss a day because you just don't feel up to it, that's fine too. <laughs> if, yeah. if it's me, if it's me, I personally train. If I it, it had access to like a, an isolated area, I would just because I like training, I think it would be beneficial for me personally, but that's my own personal uh, sort of feeling. And you may have different feelings. The more interesting argument becomes that when there are symptoms or signs of systemic involvement, which are typically, or which would be atypical with the common cold. So things like things like fever, extreme fatigue, muscle aches, swollen lymph nodes, et cetera. There's this idea that, ah, we should avoid exercise in that particular case for weeks on end, uh, particularly intense training. The thought that, you know, this viral illness that you may have causing the systemic uh, involvement could lead to myocarditis from post-viral syndrome. And you guys may be more aware of that. We've done a podcast on myocarditis related to COVID, for example, and discussed this a little bit. But uh, Austin, just to refresh the listener's memory, 
what is post-viral syndrome and how does myocarditis kind of fit into that? So I view them actually pretty separately. Post-viral syndrome is just after the resolution of the acute illness, people can have various sorts of nonspecific persisting symptoms, oftentimes things like fatigue um, being kind of the most prototypical symptom that people might have for a pretty prolonged duration after some infections. Um, and there's not typically a lot of direct treatment that is effective for the management of these sorts of, sorts of post-viral syndromes that can happen after a common cold, after influenza, after COVID. There are some, you know, uh, uh, different or unique or differentiating or more common features between the post-viral syndromes of each of these different things. Um, this is what people have heard a lot in the news, like quote unquote, long COVID, which is a pretty, still remains, I would say a pretty nebulous entity, but, um, there's a ton of active research, uh, uh going into this. And so that's kind of the post-viral syndrome sort of aspect. Um, myocarditis, I view as a distinct thing where you have active ongoing inflammation of your heart muscle tissue. Think of it like, I don't know, rhabdo of your heart, <laughs> if you had to, except it's not necessarily something that's going to resolve as quickly as regular old rhabdo will. It tends to be uh, more sustained and it can be lethal. It's Actually, fortunately, myocarditis is quite rare, um, but it is actually a pretty dangerous condition and it can be lethal in certain situations um, to have active inflammation of your heart. And so this can emerge due to infectious causes. There are various uh, viruses and other uh, types of infectious myocarditis. And then there's other autoimmune conditions and drug-induced myocarditis and things like that that can happen. So there's a whole bunch of different types uh, that are pretty high-risk conditions. And that's a situation where with somebody who has active myocarditis, that's probably the main situation, active myocarditis, active pericarditis, where I actually probably would restrict somebody's physical activity until they recover from that condition, which can take weeks to months, unfortunately. Yeah. In general, this is not a huge risk after a common cold, just again, due to the nature of the infection and it's sort of systemic involvement and it's almost lack thereof. This is why you don't get a fever. It's just not deep enough, big enough, robust enough to kind of cause uh, some of the underlying mechanisms we think may drive myocarditis, but it's possible. It is possible. The thing that's going to differentiate like what to do here is symptoms. It effectively, it is possible to have like a silent myocarditis, I suppose, until challenged, but almost by definition, upon being challenged with activity, you're going to be like, hmm, symptoms, in yeah. which case. Significant chest pain, disproportionate shortness of breath, blood tests will show evidence of heart muscle inflammation, imaging to studies will show, and EKG will show evidence of heart muscle inflammation. Yeah, this is not something that I restrict people's activity if they have any kind of respiratory illness in order to prevent this, but rather because it is pretty rare, it's like, if you develop this, then I will recommend we restrict activity, but I do not recommend restricting activity just to prevent this like very uncommon thing. Yeah. That's the weird thing. Like the idea that we should recommend that people, if you do have sort of severe or systemic sort of signs of an infection, which again would be unusual for the common cold or upper respiratory tract infection. Oh, you had a fever. Can you imagine every fever that you've ever had in your life, no exercise for a month yeah, due to this so. <laughs> risk of myocarditis. And it's like, you're going to find out. And I, I, I'm not trying to be flippant about myocarditis because it is very serious, but at the same time, like you're, you're going to know this prior in general to stepping foot in the gym, if it is significant enough to, to worry about. Yes. Uh, and again, there are, you know, things present differently can be weird. And, you know, there's going to be some outliers here, but in general, when you make like a public health recommendation, like, oh, should you exercise after a fever has resolved and you've been asymptomatic for a number of days? Uh, and, you know, yes, in general, that would be my recommendation. And if you have signs or symptoms, chest pain, disproportionate shortness of breath, things you should see your physician and not Dr. Huberman. You should, <laughs> that, that's, uh, you know, 
it's just difficult to like reconcile why this is a recommendation that's been put out there. I think it's risk averse, but almost too far uh, being to be risk averse, uh, particularly because this is relatively rare. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. That's it. That's a wrap on episode 262, The Common Cold, presented to you by Barbell Medicine. A special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining us despite maybe some post-viral syndrome, post-viral cough. We appreciate you suffering through the, uh, the, uh, the pain, probably on an NSAID at this point. Actually, it was heroin. Yeah. <laughs> Just straight, straight up heroin. <laughs> Uh, in any case, before you guys go in here, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. Helps really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Remember everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.